0: Hey there, welcome to your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people doing cool stuff in e-com and tech. I'm your host, Tim. I'm coming to you from Dublin and not in my normal studio setup, so the audio quality is as good as it's gonna get from a quick Amazon order. However, this is season one of 2021 and features an eclectic mix of creative thinkers and doers. Over six episodes, my guests will share their stories, what they've learned, and their predictions for the worlds of digital, e-com, and brand strategy. First up is Connie Nam, founder and CEO of Astrid and Miu, a London based jewellery brand who placed ninth in the 2020 Fast Track 100. We touch on the origins of the company, its organic evolution, reimagining experiential retail, and some tattoo talk. Before we get into it, a quick word from my sponsor, Clavio. That's Clay-V-O, the ultimate e commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over thirty thousand e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started today for free by visiting klaviyo.com. Your basket is empty. That's klaviyo.com. Your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode, Connie welcome to the podcast how are you and where are you
1: i'm very well tim thanks for having me i am in london in my house actually in my shed in my house and uh which is called the home office here
0: very interesting and and was it a um a home office prior to this year or was it mm-hmm. a, 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 a renovated shed it's a,
1: it's a renovated shit it's a renovated it was literally a storage with everything chucked in but then we we had this like amazing space that we weren't using so about three months ago two months ago three months ago um my husband actually gave the renovation as my birthday present at end of september
0: that's an incredibly thoughtful gift connie i like that i think that's yeah good. It's, it's both practical thoughtful you can enjoy it. Others can enjoy it. I, I like that. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah
1: me too. I might have forced him, to
0: get him <laughs> <at his> present. <laughs> um, so I want to. I there, there's a great uh, as we were just discussing. There, there's there's a huge amount of content on your site, and we're going to get to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think if anyone wants to learn more about the You brand, I suggest they go to the site and check it out. But I'm I'm always keen to get your kind of take on the inception of how it starts. So just give me a flavour as to what was the inception of the brand?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I actually started Astro to Me as a project, um, embarrassingly. So I um, worked in investment banking for about five years, and then I did my MBA to take some time off. Um, and then I did an internship at LVMH thinking that I wanted to get into fashion, but I just didn't want to go back to um, the corporate world. So I decided to start a project in the fashion space. And I was looking at different categories and, Every um, other fashion category seems to have so many cool brands, whereas jewelry, I felt like there was something missing Um, in the mid-market category. It was either you go to Topshop or Zara and get a throwaway jewelry, or you go to Tiffany's or Cartier, and it's like ridiculously expensive. So I thought there is an opportunity to create something really well-branded, fashion-forward, and um, well designed and high quality. So that's how Astrademia came about. And um, back home in Korea, I used to go to this small jewelry store where the owner was always there. She was so friendly, and I kind of um, wanted to create that environment, I guess, in a in an international setting at a scale. So that's how Astrademia came about.
0: And so I, I'm always intrigued because I, I find that this is this is a common theme where someone has maybe come from a more uh, corporate world, and we'll talk about mm. that in a second, and they have like a side thing that they do. So I'm always interested, and I feel sometimes these are the gaps that are left out in these journeys. Like at what point did you see like this was becoming a thing? like when did you see like the traction whatever it is that you needed to go okay i'm going to do this full time and what were you thinking at the time does it did it happen organically or was there kind of like a clear you know inflection point
1: yeah i guess um for the first year i kind of had my foot um halfway all the time cuz i thought of this as a project but when i first launched the first thing i did was hire a pr agent that was the biggest investment and I guess I was quite lucky. Um, within two weeks or so, we were featured in Grazia and um, The Stylist. And these lists, shopping lists in these publications were a big deal back then, eight years ago. So I think that gave me a lot of optimism to think, oh, oh my God, maybe this is working. And I started getting orders that were not family and friends. Um, so I guess that's when I um, thought that it's working. And I guess the big infection. But... Uh, no, no. Going back to your original question on what I was thinking, uh, so so many things. Um, I was thinking, should I leave this as a side project and get a real quote-unquote real job, or do I stay small, keep on bootstrapping, or do I scale, get investment, do I hire people? And I guess the definitive commitment was when I hired my first empo- employee, um, because I had someone on payroll. I had to be responsible for someone, so that's when I really committed, which was one year on to setting up the business
0: and talk me through that that period did you did you have people around you kind of um helping you make some of those decisions were you uh doing loads of reading like h- how did you kind of navigate that time because i get it like yeah you, you bring someone on and then that that's kind of it it's real so you've, you're responsible mm. for somebody but d- did you did you have a network or were you just going it alone how did that work
1: um, I think at that time, people always um, connected me to other startup founders. So we were just bouncing ideas. But I think looking back, no one knew what they were doing anyways. But <laughs> it was a it was a really good support network where we could bounce ideas um, around um, a group of really smart people. So I think that was, um, yeah, those are the people that I was speaking to.
0: Um, I want to quickly, before we get into some of the more uh, interesting Bits of the brand and the site and, and kind of what you're doing right now. You you touched on it there and that you were came from a kind of investment banking background and then you moved on to an MBA. You're not the first mm-hmm. person that I've met that started a consumer brand that's that's come from that world. And I'm always intrigued. Like, do, what advantages do you think that that brings? Uh, and I suppose equally, do, do you see it as as as, as posing any challenges?
1: Um, yeah, it's funny that you say that because I recently interviewed um, Ade Hassan, who's the founder of Nubian Skin, and she also comes from investment banking during the same era. And I know that you came from investment banking as well, Tim, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. you would be able to answer this too. But I think um, maybe there are three factors. Firstly, in investment banking, you're looking at so many different business models, right? Uh, Obviously, vicarious, you're not executing anything, but you have that full visibility and you have... um, you know, visibility and connection to the CEOs and CFOs. So you build that confidence, I guess. And then um, the second part is the work ethics and resilience <laughs> that you need to build up in investment banking and that hustle. Um, because back, back then, I don't know what it is right now. It's probably not as sexy to be in investment banking right now. But when I graduated many years ago, um, I think the smartest kids went into investment banking or consulting But the ones that had hustle went into investment banking. So maybe that's it. And then the third is um, if you're an investment banker, you kind of know the language of investors and how to speak to investors. And um, access to capital is really important if you want to scale your direct-to-consumer brands. So I think that could be another factor. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, your observation.
0: I think all of those things hold true. I, I would say, um, so I, I ran a record label for a while, so I have kind of done my own thing for a bit. And mm. um, myself and I had a kind of, um, it was a very, very small time thing. I had a, a business partner. And the thing I found that worked in my favor coming from that world was also quite a good handle of like numbers in, in whatever form that took, do you know what I mean? But specifically, yeah. kind of like you know, b- b- business numbers, and even as simple as things as like understanding what what profit margin is. Because I, I felt yeah. that, and, and many of the entrepreneurs I've I've met along my journey, what well, if you've got someone in the team who's kind of got that grasp, and that that usually not necessarily puts them at an advantage, but it gives them a good foundation to be able to kind of. I suppose, be prudent about the, the mm. business, you know, and kind of have that um, not necessarily checked off, but, you know, somebody looking after it. So, yeah, I I, I think the, yeah, that the hustle thing, that's kind of the most important one I would say <laughs> the, because the numbers, yeah, I mean, it, it's good, but you can always, you know, particularly now, you know, outsource or bring in, yeah. you know, that that kind of um, expertise. So, yeah, the, the hustle thing I think is, is definitely. Also, maybe like the ultimately i suppose it's the risk bit right it's like the bit Mm. where you you mentioned it before you have a side thing and then at some point you're like i'm going to shift everything into that and i suppose that uh uh, that ability that confidence um that kind of um foresight to you know to just go for it i think is probably something that maybe that world kind of teaches you um So yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's it's an interesting concept. But but in, in saying that, I I suppose that, that, you know, there are a lot of, I know, um, uh, at the, the university I went to now, a, a friend of mine is a, is a, is a lecturer there and um, this person teaches entrepreneurship, which was not something that was taught when I was there. It was all the classic kind of yeah. um, you know, finance, mathematics, um, you know, economics, um, that sort of stuff. There was no like specific entrepreneurship thing. Mm. So I, I, I'd be interested to see what people coming out of, you know, business schools and and kind of going into those worlds that you talk about that were sexy at one time, that maybe not so much anymore, like maybe they're being injected with a, with a, with a greater sense of, of entrepreneurship. I don't know. Mm.
1: I'd be really interested to see how they could teach, um, entrepreneurship in academia because it's so different. It's so non-linear entrepreneurship, but um, yeah.
0: Do, do uh, you think that you, do you think you can teach Cause that's an interesting point. Is it that someone is either entrepreneurial or they're not?
1: Um, I guess you can teach the mindset of things because I think it's half the battle is mindset and being able to compartmentalize your emotions and everything with uh, what's happening in the business and I think that's the toughest thing and like being able to take risks um so I don't know maybe psychology needs to be part of our
0: <laughs> <laughs> well that's a really interesting point and, and I think that goes back to what you talked about before in terms of a support network you don't mm. maybe necessarily need to have well, I, 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 I personally think that like mentors and, and coaches and people that have kind of been there, done that is really helpful yeah. at certain stages, not necessarily every yeah. stage, yeah. but having a support network where you can kind of commiserate with them and they're kind of going through the same thing, which is mm-hmm. more along the lines of that psychological support. Yeah. I, th- I think is really important because there's that relatability and it does, I suppose, give you perspective when things can be seemingly going really, you know, can be really challenging.
1: Yeah, exactly. And everyone has different perspectives. You, know, you can take whatever you need to take from it and ignore what you what's not beneficial for you, I guess. Um and I, I guess the down you asked the downside of having come from investment banking. I think um the downside is you don't really learn to manage people because people skill is not something that's celebrated in vet, in banking. I think it's the like Um, rigor and the smartness that's celebrated right and people want you to be aggressive so I think the people side um you're not trained in it and I think um it it took me a long time to be patient with people I guess because in investment making you're really used to working with really hardworking, really ambitious group of people um I mean like abnormally right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's
0: very interesting yeah the soft skills which is I would argue potentially going back to that, some of the reasons why that the that that, that skill set is is um uh beneficial, I feel that a lot of that can be outsourced, but mm-hmm. outsourcing soft skills, that's quite difficult, you know. And they are the ones, the leadership, the the communication, the yeah. empathy, the patience, the compassion, you know, which are super vital to any I mean, most businesses I think are people businesses, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. having that, you know, and developing and growing, um, those kind of high-performing teams yeah that's maybe the investment banking world needs it maybe there is something to be had here that the oh yeah the definitely. compassion of the entrepreneurial direct consumer world <laughs> could could shift over into investment banking um so i want to talk a little bit more about the the brand and um an observation i had uh, or have is, is that content seems to be quite a big part mm-hmm. of Astrid and me um you've got um a great blog you've got uh, you've got your own podcast. Um, so I, I wanted to know, was this always the case? Um, was it like baked into the original idea uh, and and how has it evolved? And would you recommend that kind of uh, content approach to someone else who's embarking on a, on a DDC venture?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess content per se, um, I, I wasn't articulating that content was part of my strategy initially, but I did want to create a community. And I mean, even the word community, it wasn't a buzzword back then, but I was inspired by this little jewelry boutique I used to go to back home and the owner was there and the feeling was just so warm and cozy. And I would just go in there to chat to her. And I guess that was community. And I wanted to translate that feeling. I didn't know what that was called. So um, that was my initial vision. And the way to do that was to create a lot of content for us because we were um, an e-commerce driven business initially. And I would definitely um, recommend other drink to consumer ventures that are starting out to deploy a content strategy because more and more people are wanting to learn about um, the behind the scenes of the business and purpose of the business and um, how things come about. They don't want to just see products. They want to see um, what goes into the products.
0: And, uh, you know, from your experiences, w- w- what did you think was an important aspect of that? Because, there's a, there, you know, that's kind of all wrapped into the brand as well, like the tone of mm-hmm. voice, what you speak about, what channels you use you know when you talk about your your content strategy there was was that again like an organic evolving process or are there times particularly now you know kind of like w- well into the business where you sit down and you're quite um um like uh purposeful with with that approach
1: yeah initially we were pretty organic i guess we just posted what we felt like posting but During the pandemic, we saw more and more people resonating with um, things that were not jewelry related. So when lockdown hit, we gave self-care tips and we spoke loudly about Black Lives Matter as well, because diversity is something that's so passionate, like that's such a, a passion for me personally, being an ethnic minority. So we started talking about it and we saw that having a strong voice Um, being a little bit political really resonates with our customers. So we're being a lot more thoughtful um, from now on. And next year we have a whole like content strategy where um, we're, you know, voicing our opinions more strongly versus before um, being less soft and being more opinionated.
0: You, You touched before on the concept of community building. And that's certainly another observation that I take from kind of, um, or oh, the outward perception of 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 Astrid Miu. but I know you've got some interesting initiatives kind of running, um, and one's called the the Brand Lab. Can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the Brand Lab. This is this was also a very organic process. So when lockdown hit and we went through crisis management, um, oh, I, I've seen so much kindness around me. Um, And so much like togetherness and I was just reflecting back and thinking, how can I add value to the society and community? And I thought, oh, like I should actually mentor, um, you know, small business owners because when I started my business, I felt like that was something that was missing. Uh, Obviously, like I told you, I had the peer group, but I didn't have a mentor per se. So I started um, informally mentoring three business owners. And then off the back of this, my team started uh, um, mentoring graduates. So we launched a student mentorship program separately. And then I decided to launch a podcast interviewing founders and leaders of iconic brands, because that's also sort of how I learned um, through podcasts and books. And then all of this consolidated um, became the brand lab initiative. So that's how it came about and it's a bit of a passion project for me at the moment.
0: I'm keen to talk a little bit about, um, I suppose how things have, you know, big uh, period of change or acceleration, depending on which way you look at it over the last while. Um, and I know that you guys had or have uh, a, a bricks and mortar presence um, and and, and, with yours uh, um it seemed to be slightly uh more unique than other kind of bricks and mortar presences in that you would have kind of ancillary um things that you you do like piercing and tattooing in 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 the 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 shops so how did that piece come about again was it organic and i'm keen to understand what your thoughts are you know, as we grapple with a, a post-pandemic world, how how those sorts of kind of concepts will will be part of the brand?
1: Yeah, yeah. You're gonna get tired of me saying organic, but it, it was an <laughs> organic process as well. <laughs> it's it sounds like we don't have a strategy. Everything's organic. <laughs> um, so, so, um, piercing. We actually thought about this many years ago because we were already known for our ear stacks and ear cuffs. So a lot of our customers came through the door asking whether we have piercing services because there weren't that many that existed. You could go to Claire's and get a gun piercing, or I guess you could go to Maria Tash and get like a 500-pound piercing. Um, So a lot of people were asking. So we had our staff always mark um, in their daily report what the customers are saying. And like week on week, every week, we had piercing inquiries. So we looked into this, but the logistics and regulations around this, starting piercing was like... um, you know, too much of a hurdle to um, overcome. So we like held off on this for a while. Um, And then one of my friends went to New York and she told me, oh, like this piercing thing, like piercing party and everything is blowing up in New York. You really need to do this. So this was was 2018 in August, July or August, because this was right before I gave birth to my second um, one. We started doing piercing parties in one of our stores. So that was once a week and they got fully booked. And then we started doing twice a week. They got fully booked and customers are upset because they couldn't book a slot. And then we decided to roll out um, for every single day in that store. And it was still fully booked. So we decided to roll it out to all of our stores and every single new store that we launched afterwards, um, we had this piercing studio concept in mind. Um, and then with the I guess with the other services they weren't they were less organic because we knew that piercing was driving sales and traffic and also loyalty with our customers and another touch point that people can engage with so we're like oh what what else can we um, offer to our customers other than piercing and um, you know like in traditional piercing parlors it's very common to have piercing and tattoo in tandem. So mm-hmm. a lot of our piercers also knew tattoo artists. So we met this amazing tattoo artist called Alessandro. Um, and then we just started doing it once a week in one of our stores. And then now we do it three, three days a week um, in that store. And the stores going forward, were probably going
0: and And, to- and do you just, is, is, it, is it that this just helps with that sense of community because i feel like it does right because then there's like you know there's a as you say another touch point and another um not just reason but also um incentive for people to kind of get involved in the brand
1: yeah exactly and if you're getting a service done um especially if you're getting you know your ears pierced you're putting your um I guess, body part at risk with someone. Um, And also it's like going to the hair salon. If you go to the hair salon, the stylist will chat to you for an hour with piercing. The piercer will chat to you for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you build that bond and you don't really have that kind of engagement if you're just buying jewelry, right? So yeah, I think, I guess it's that in-depth engagement with the customer.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's like even if you were to take a, 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 um, the lens of the fashion world or apparel or whatever, it, it, it's kind of similar. Like, how how do you build that um, connection with a with a customer, and and the in store experience is kind of it um but even if you go into a, a store that's th- 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 that you like being in um it's not that often that you strike up a conversation with the kind of people that are working there so mm. how, how can you like i suppose that like a more of a personal stylist type arrangement in that world yeah. would be that sort of way of building and driving that that connection um yeah but, exactly But i even st- i still feel there's probably a little bit of friction that a brand would need to go through in order to kind of like um uh, Make that connection between the people quite seamless, whereas to some degree the piercing and the tattoo <laughs> you you are forced <laughs> to be with someone, you know. And 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 I am sure that you guys are very conscious of the sorts of people that you you're, you're like um, yeah. bringing into the brand that are part mm-hmm. of and face of the brand. They're like they're they're kind of astrodomy people, and then there's going to yeah. be that immediate connection. But there's that yeah. time where you do need to be with them that it forces you to have that conversation, which is which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, exactly, and you're kind of being vulnerable with these, these people, and I guess that's kind of like our proposition versus other piercing parlors or, um, I guess, studios. We want this to be a very approachable, friendly, and warm experience versus an intimidating experience in a traditional tattoo and piercing studio.
0: Um, so you, 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 at the very start of the conversation, you mentioned that you, um, uh, one of the first. Um, pieces of the the puzzle to make this a real thing was your first employee. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm keen to know what your team looks like now compared to then. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I mean, back then in 2012, it was just me. And then 2013, I hired my first employee who's our head of marketing and e-commerce who you um, speak to regularly, Sarah. And then we we had like a bunch of interns back then and a really small office. I think it was 300 square feet. Um, And now we have around 100 staff, um, 40 in the office, 60 in the stores, including our piercers and tattoo artists and the jewelers that do welding. And now I have really strong heads of departments and managers supporting me. um, And they just take over all the day-to-day execution. Whereas in 2012, I was doing everything from packing, picking, um, going to the post office, I was also putting jewelry on my wrists and ears and taking photos. So I was also modeling kind of, (laughs) I was doing the fireman, I was doing everything, but now I don't really like um, it. uh, Yeah. I mean, the strong team allowed me to step out of the business a bit more and um, work on vision, like strategic direction and um, all the, I guess, fun stuff.
0: (laughs) How have you adapted to that change in role? Did you, did you find it, easy to kind of uh, because you know it was it it is still very much you and your brand but you know Mm. the the, the more people you hire the more let's be honest control you you kind of need to let go of like how did you approach that
1: oh I think it's very difficult (laughs) but again I think coming from an investment banking background helps because I um tend to look at the numbers and the overall pictures. So I think compared to other founders that I speak to, I find it a bit easier to step up. Um, but like, obviously it's not easy, especially when you spot like small things that, um, you know, you wouldn't have done if you personally executed it, but you have to learn to let go um, because it would be very demotivating for people for me to like just pitch in and uh, make random comments. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I know yeah. I I totally get it. It's like building a team or building a company, yeah. you know, that that piece Yeah, yeah. And but it, it's
1: yeah, yeah. It, it it is very difficult, and I think every stage of the change is also so different. You think if you've adjusted to different changes every year, it would become easier, but every year it's a different challenge. Um, yeah, uh,
0: do you, how do you see that then? Do you feel it's like the same company that's gone through different stages, or do you feel like it's you know running Separate companies every time there's a set step change?
1: um I think it's the same company. I think the spirit is still there. We're still pretty entrepreneurial. The idea to execution is very short still. And we have a no bullshit, no politics policy. So everyone's pretty nice and reasonable. Um, we hire very, like, you know, we hire people who are strong in emotional intelligence um, and are self aware. So I think you know, the spirit hasn't changed. My role has changed for sure. Um, yeah, I think, so I think like it does feel like the same company.
0: We've, we've just that point that we were talking about, we, we, we've touched on a word there, change. Um, and I, and I suppose that that could be seen as uh, one of the big words of, of 2020. Although mm-hmm. I I feel that there is a, an argument to be said that it's uh this year is just fast forwarded a lot of what all was already happening, but I'm keen to understand particularly, you know, this, uh, we're talking about the team, like how have you guys adapted to 2020?
1: Um, I think we started having more communication. So over communicating and we started having more structured communication, which I think we probably needed as the team grew because we were so used to having, organic fluid conversations in the office. So that could have left some people out uh, who are not used to that kind of um, communication. So I think it's um, evens out um, communication flow for everyone. So I think we kind of adapted to, for the better. And obviously things have slowed down a bit in terms of sales and expansion. So we took this opportunity to put more processes and structure in, which um, sets us up for better growth and I guess, um, better organization going forward.
0: Um, I'm keen and, and you don't need to divulge anything sensitive, of course, but what what has your funding journey been like at at, a high level how has that worked across the 12 years
1: yeah i mean eight eight years not quite 12 but um sorry 2012 (laughs) is when it started
0: eight years yeah my bad
1: (laughs) the 12 years made me feel so old that's why i had to correct you (laughs) so yeah i can i can go into the details so when i first started my mom put in some money And then after a year, I actually sold my flat in Hong Kong because I wanted to bootstrap as long as possible. Um, And then 2015, my husband boyfriend back then put in a bit of money because he knew I was struggling. Um, And then yeah, straight like shortly after that, I decided to go for an angel round. So in 2015, I took some angel investment, and then last year I had a fund called Turn and buyout most of the existing angel investors um, and put in a small amount of primary capital. So that's been the funding journey. And then um, yeah, two, two, um, two of those investments, I was actually fully pregnant. So yeah, in the 2019 round, I started speaking to those investors in 2018, right before I gave birth. So I was fully pregnant. So that's something
0: that's interesting to note. <laughs> well, talk me through that experience. How, how have you, I mean, that is an incredible feat. And I congratulate you that you've been able to, to do that because, I mean, you've got like, it sounds like three or four jobs going on at any one time. So that, how have you managed to kind of maintain that that the balance between um, the kind of personal life and the, the professional life? Or, or is there no such thing and they just intertwine with each other and you, you make it work?
1: Oh, I think that's very difficult. <laughs> but I think um, you you just need to learn how to delegate. If you try to control everything or try to be perfect, you can't really balance yourself. So, um, yeah, I like I'm not a perfectionist, so that helps. And um, I think delegating is key. So having good senior management that can support you, so you can step out a little bit, and the mm-hmm. business will be okay. That's key. And also like. Um, at home, it helps to have a supportive partner. Um, obviously, not everyone's as lucky as me, but my husband's been so supportive. And, you know, he he's probably a better parent than I am as well. And obviously, we have a really good nanny who helps us. Um, so, yeah, having a really good team around you, I think is really helpful in balancing your life and um, work.
0: So I'm keen to understand if you weren't, running astrid and Mew, what would you be doing
1: um i would probably be running another consumer business because i love the consumer space and i love businesses but if you um rewind back to when i was 17 or so when i was um you know picking out my major i was debating between fashion design and business and then went into business because, um, yeah, my dad told me, oh, if you go into design, you'll be poor forever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sage advice, yeah.
1: <laughs> so may, maybe I would have been a fashion designer. I don't know.
0: <laughs> so, okay, so there, there, there's always been that kind of, uh, I suppose, more, more more, creative slant in your thinking for, for kind of uh, forever.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: And... If if you were to take a wider lens, um, I, I know that, that you you touched on some of the the, the examples of other brands in, in your space. You know, kind of at that when you started, there there was the the, the low end which didn't get great stuff, and then there was the really high end stuff, and you found that gap in between. So, mm-hmm. like, what what brands do you look for um, uh, as as inspiration?
1: what what brands do i look for inspiration yeah. i think um Who inspires yeah. you um in in terms of brands yeah because um, I, I feel people, that there's people.
0: like a you know that there it's easy to sort of um pigeonhole a brand and an inspiration go oh you look at x brand in your space but Are there brands generally that you look to and think, okay, they're doing something really interesting and, you know, that that it kind of keeps you going and, 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 you know, uh, as a North Star or something along those lines?
1: Yeah, I don't think there is one brand that I look at, but I think there are some really good, cool brands that are doing things right. I think Ganny in the fashion space Mm -hmm. does everything from, you know, working with artists, um, empowering women, and also the sustainability element. They're doing a really good job. I think Glossier does a really good job in community building and really being authentic and transparent about what they do. Um, Obviously, they started out as a content um, business. So I guess that's their strength. So I guess those... Two are the businesses that I think are doing a really good job, um, but I wouldn't say that I look at them for inspiration. I I think I look at like a lot of different things and a lot of different people, and it all kind of gels together.
0: And I'm keen to as we uh, look back upon this year and 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 um, you know uh, since 2012, the can you identify any decisions that you've made that were really good <laughs> and any that maybe weren't as good
1: hmm. i guess um i think um i mean the decision to start astrid Mew, i think was a really good decision and the decision to take investment to scale was a good decision because um, remember when I said I had loads of people that were doing startups when I first started in 2012 most of them are not running their businesses or they're at the same stage now because they were too scared to scale um, and hire people so I think that, that that was a good decision and then I think the worst decisions I think was from hiring mistakes <laughs> <laughs>
0: don't <laughs> so don't me through that. what 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 did you learn from those ex- the, the the hiring mistakes? Because yeah, I've got plenty of uh, of of battle uh, stories we can we can share.
1: <laughs> uh, I've learned that interviewing well doesn't mean that people can do things because especially at a startup, you need people who can execute and who, who can you know put their heads down and work and do things. So uh, I I guess I learned that the hard way because I put a lot of weight in my confidence and how they can pitch and things. But those are not the most important skills. They're good if you're a sales in a sales role. Um, So yeah, I think one example is that.
0: Yeah, you need to be able to sniff the bullshit. That's for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: What, What were your learnings? I'd be curious to hear.
0: Yeah, similar sort of deal. I think what I've learned is that... I used to have this kind of romantic idea of like you would find the diamond in the rough and and, Mm. and it was like someone would just kind of that in interviews and you get bowled over by someone and we're kind of, there's this natural lean towards, oh, I want to be wowed. And Mm. yeah, that's definitely a thing. I think like people who are impressive, that leaves a a great impression. Yeah. But Mm. I feel that, that I've learned that, well, what I found to be successful is hiring is a journey and you kind of need to go on the journey with people. And I like to start Mm. off really small and I have like a chemistry meeting with them. And I just talk to them. I get them to just explain like what it is that they've done and, um, I try and look for things like can they explain to me really succinctly what they've done? Or do they kind of waffle? And I just feel mm. that it's those really little things like that, in that first 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever it mm. is, that you get a real sense of how someone kind of just operates. And then ideally, this was you know pre-COVID, I would always like to um, not necessarily interview, but go for a coffee with the person and see yeah. how they interact with the outside mm. world. And the things I'd be looking for were Again, it's little things, but I feel it's really important is like how they interact with like say if we went for a coffee, like how they interact with like the waiting staff. Were they like rude to mm. them or were they really compassion? Do you know what I mean? Just things like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, trying yeah, to pick up yeah, on those soft skills. I, yeah,
1: yeah. I know what you mean. I completely agree. And I've kind of prolonged that interview process as well. So I normally have a four-stage interview, so like initial one would be very casual. And I want to see whether they actually listen to me and address the question that I ask them, <laughs> which is which is really which is really basic, but not a lot of people can do that because 100%. they're so consumed with what they want to say rather than listening to what I have to say.
0: It's so funny you say that. So, like, I um I I used a, uh, a, a kind of like grad scheme. Um, uh, agency um, mm. for, and they the kind of uh, I suppose the more ju- junior type people and, and we we hired a few people from them and two of them were absolutely exceptional like two of the best people I've worked with and and um, one of them's unfortunately moving on at, at the end of this year but um, the other Jules she's still with us and, and they're so so good they were kind of that like you got wowed in the first interview but it was really interesting because um, they'd obviously gone through this grad program and the grad program which was kind of like a sales and marketing grad program when i went into the interview they it was clear that the grad program had told them to say all these certain things <laughs> and i was like I, you know as we were chatting like in the interview i had to I was like look i think i can tell that the grad program have told you to say things because it doesn't <laughs> it feels disingenuous and it's not yeah. i want to hear about you like what do you think yeah, and yeah. you know they were both incredibly intelligent and and, and and great people and it was it was weird because i felt that 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 grad program well maybe i wasn't the right target market for that grad program because i wasn't like mm, a SaaS sales mm, company but it yeah. felt very formulaic and i was like that that seems weird that they're obviously telling these you know very young and, and impressionable people to do these things when they go mm, into an interview mm, and it mm. just felt re- really bizarre
1: yeah um, you want to you want to really see the real them right get to the bottom of things
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I find that, so that, that I, I do a similar thing. So stage interview, meet more people, ideally see them in different environments to see how they handle different situations. And then a lot of it, you know, when you get down to the kind of the the real pointy end it's just i pose real world problems like hey this thing happened to me yesterday how would you deal with it and i'm really trying to figure out like how do they think like what's their decision making process and like how would they approach certain situations or even i just you know like hey, we have got this real problem going on how would you deal with that and you Mm -hmm. know you know people that are coming up with creative solutions and, and all this sort of stuff you oh yeah that's like really interesting but to some degree i i find that i i probably lean towards an assumption like if they're yeah. applying for a job and they've worked at x y z like i suppose someone coming into to I me mean, you say they were coming into like a, a, a social or a marketing role or whatever yeah. they've worked at like three or four direct consumer brands and they've done mm. what you've done i kind of feel that okay i assume you can do the job like i don't i assume that and you know yeah. that will come out with references and you know the kind of mm. the basic stuff it's more than about that you know the people and then are they the right cultural fit so making sure that that's first and foremost and you know yeah I, yeah because I find that um I talk to a lot of companies that um haven't got that sorted and then they wonder why they're interviewing or their hiring isn't working and I feel like well if you haven't figured out what the sort of people that you are and what you want to be yeah then how do you know that you're bringing those people in you know and so that
1: yeah kind of exactly stage one. yeah 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 so stage yeah it, exactly so I actually um after I made all these mistakes I spelled out you know, the value and culture that I want to create. And that made it so much easier to hire these people. Um, It kind of filtered the bullshit and um, bullshitters and assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have a very similar approach to hiring.
0: Um, I think so. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm always in, intrigued to see how other people do it. Cause I've mm. definitely, I feel that that, that is the, I find, and this is what I find when we, we talk to clients as well. I feel that like, clients yeah they want to hear like you know all the great stories that you've got and and and, and kind of similar to you guys like consumers want to see all the the, the most amazing new product but uh, i feel that to some degree that the, the the clients and the customers they want to see where you've not done things right and learned from it you know and mm. i feel that that's really where the hiring piece comes into it's like where has it not yeah. worked and you know yeah. how have you kind of navigated it and i think that's the most yeah
1: stuff. yeah exactly because it's not something you can see on the surface but it's the most important thing if you want to scale
0: absolutely um i'm kind of keen to just draw it to a close so i've i've uh, i've got a question here for you so yeah um, you're walking past astro me store uh mm-hmm. and you're gonna pop in and you're gonna get a tattoo what would it be
1: <laughs> i actually recently got a tattoo um of my star sign libra but i guess um if i were to get another one we just launched our birth um flower range so i get a puppy which is an august flower which is when uh, my husband was born
0: that's very nice um (laughs) i think anyone so i've got quite a lot of tattoos and and i would say to any listeners out there if anyone tells you that it gets better the more you get they are lying and it is just as painful as the first one but i highly (laughs) recommend what, what
1: do you what do you have uh
0: i it, it, you know what it is it's rather morbid all of my tattoos so i've got i um i'm quite into art as well so i've drawn all the tattoos that i've got and um, oh wow
1: uh,
0: ones of my uh my, my grandfather who i was very close to it was like i uh, did a sort of like sketch it's like really basic it's kind of like it's hard to explain but my tattoos are very uh I suppose you would say they're like more of a punk aesthetic. They're not like real realistic. Mm. They're kind of cartoonish in their sense. You know, they're just really uh, basic line drawings and it's very, very, very basic, slightly childlike. And so I did like this kind of like sketch of my grandfather's first passport photo. So there's him. Uh, And then I'm a big uh, uh, like New Order and Joy Division fan. So I, I, I did a sketch of Ian Curtis and then I've got like, Warsaw written underneath it, which is the name of Joy Division before they were Joy Division. Uh, And then I've got a skull.
1: So you've got a lot then, of heads. I've got and a lot know, of heads, yeah. and all these
0: people are dead. <laughs> all these bloody people are dead. So it's like, yeah, it is quite funny, yeah. And then the, the the probably oh then I've got my um above my knee. I've got my grandma's name, who is still alive. Uh, it's and her nickname is Bambi. That's what we call her, Bambi. So I've got Bambi written above my knee. Oh, and that's nice. I've got uh oh yeah, I've got this is the, this is the, the this is the worst one. Well, I've got a, 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 a dagger and it was myself and my girlfriend <laughs> and we got matching daggers and it Oh we were, nice. Yeah and we were got it was it was kind of like supposed to be like a uh, a, a love thing and we were going to write like till death do us part underneath the dagger So it's kind of like, <laughs> very
1: intense yeah
0: exactly intense <laughs> but it was kind of like funny we got yeah. like a weird sense of humor but I never yeah. got the writing so I've just got this bloody dagger on my arm and it's a little bit intense so yeah I, I need to get some stuff around it to make it look less intense but yeah, yeah. you can I, get I'm, one
1: of our flowers <laughs> I,
0: exactly no seriously something like that or like a little dove or whatever I like I, yeah I'd be up for that because yeah. I'm not I'm not a hard nut and I, I probably look a bit like a
1: yeah, our thing. our rose design is really nice it's um you know it's floral but it's quite like intense as well so you
0: can uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 nice all right well mm. I, I, yeah i'll, I'll well, next time i'm i'm in, i'm in the in the market for a tattoo i will uh, I'll you guys
1: yeah out. yeah just message me we might get you a complimentary one
0: nice. <laughs> um i suppose uh, two final questions um mm-hmm. like what's next for you guys um in 2021 and where can people find you
1: Oh my, so many exciting things. So 2020, so we've built this um really cool cult brand around London, but we're still very heavily skewed towards London. So majority of our customers are still London based. And I think there's so much opportunity regionally. So I'm currently um, in the process of negotiating a couple of leases outside of London. So watch this space and also international. Last year, we did a couple of pop-ups in New York, which were really successful. And This year, we were actually supposed to open a permanent store out in Europe, but obviously it didn't happen because of COVID, but we are going to revisit this next year. So, um, yeah, international and regional expansion.
0: Very cool. And where where can people find you?
1: Me personally, yeah, um, or the brand, you know. (laughs) Either
0: or, this is like a free plug for anyone, any personal (laughs) or professional. Yeah,
1: so, so, so the brand is. Um, you can find us online as well as um our store locations. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I'm I'm at home most of the time. So, um, if anyone's around my neighbor, I, I live in Wandsworth. So, if anyone's in Wandsworth, I guess they can see me if I am going to the store or something. Or like every Sunday, I go to Wimbledon Common with my husband. So, um, yeah, nice. I go for All a right. long walk. We'll, we'll, we'll try and avoid
0: yeah. any weird, weird creepers. On, on, on I don't think yeah. there's that many who <laughs> listen to my podcast, but I suppose yeah, I, I think uh, you, you're you're quite active. I think and, and and your your LinkedIn is quite good. So I think that anyone yeah. who's interested could go and check you out there. But um, yeah, <laughs> um,
1: I think you can delete that, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Connie, look, that was so good. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. It was really nice speaking to you.
0: There you go. First episode for 2021. A massive thank you to Connie for joining me. Go check out Astrid and Miu at Astrid Before I go, a quick word for my sponsor, Clavio, the ultimate e commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at Clavio.comslash your basket is empty. As always, if you like the episode, please subscribe, download, and tell all your clubhouse mates to do the same. I'll see you next time.